Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Good to have you listening to NPR News today. This hour, what does back to school look like amidst the Delta variant spread and many students who are unvaccinated? Most experts are saying that the benefits of in-person learning outweigh the risks posed by COVID and the Delta variant. But we know you have a lot of questions about that. How effective will layers of masks and distancing and hand washing be? You should know that the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending continued masking in schools for all students, teachers and staff. And we'll talk about how you should handle unvaccinated school going kids who may be mixing with family members, especially siblings, who also haven't gotten the vaccine yet. So. As our guests join us, what do you want to know about school, COVID, and the Delta variant? What's your school telling you about how it will handle the return of in-person learning? What are you most concerned about as an educator and as a parent? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 and on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I. NPR. Dr. Paul Offit is a pediatrician and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital in Philly. He joins us from Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Madeline Gagnon is associate medical director at Gillette Children's Specialty Hospital, where she's also vice chief of staff. Dr. Gagnon, welcome to you to the show. It's good to have you this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Dr. Gadden, I want to be clear on whether you agree with the other expert recommendations that in-person learning is so necessary that kids have to be back in school, even though this pandemic isn't over and the Delta variant is spreading. Is that the balancing act and you come down on the side of, yes, in-person learning is essential? Yes, I agree. Our children have paid a significant price for this pandemic between hybrid learning, their mental health, their social health and how their own health has been impacted. Children are often overlooked, but over 110,000 children in Minnesota alone have uh, contracted COVID, and their family members certainly have also been impacted. So to your point, it's that delicate balance of recognizing the need for in-person learning, but balancing the delicate resources that each district in a unique way is trying to bring that together with their resources and communication. And that brings for a difficult challenge. But yes, I, of course, do agree with the American Academy of Pediatrics that in-person learning is so important for our children across Minnesota. Dr. Offit, you agree with that as well? Completely. I think for all the reasons that uh, the doctor just said, we, we need to get children get back to school. I know just as one small point, I mean, or, or prominent or, or important point is that in Philadelphia last year, the the rate of child abuse dropped to virtually zero. <laughs> it's not because it actually dropped to zero. It's because child abuse was usually picked up in the schools. And because many kids didn't get back to school, we didn't get to see it. So that's just one of the many ways in which children have suffered this pandemic. Dr. Offit, I read an interview that you did last month, and you said, this is a winter virus. Kids are going to be going back to school. They're not likely to be masking. They're not likely to be social distancing. And I think you're going to see, again, an outbreak of this virus come late fall and winter. Are you concerned that these layers of mitigation that schools did last spring and that they're planning to do again this fall, are not going to be, what, followed or sufficient 
to protect kids? What's what's your view on that? What were you thinking about there? Right. So, so it's a confluence of three unfortunate events. You have the Delta variant, which is clearly more contagious. You have children less than 12 who at least right now can't be vaccinated. It's extremely unlikely that there's going to be a vaccine available at the start of school. I mean, hopefully we'll have it by late, late fall or early winter. We'll see. And, and you have winter where it clearly the virus spreads more easily in drier, less humid, uh, cooler climates. So that's a bad combination of three things. Also, the, the, you know, when you see, for example, that yesterday there were 100,000 cases in the United States and 500 deaths. I mean, those are the numbers we saw last summer. Last summer when we had a fully susceptible population. Last summer when we didn't have a vaccine. Why? I mean, why is it so much worse? Or why is it, why is it that we haven't had significant advances? And I think the reason is twofold. One is the Delta variant is more contagious, so that's part of it. But the other thing is our behavior has changed. I mean, if you think about last summer, you know, we were appalled when there was a bikers convention in Sturgis, South Dakota. And, right. and, you know, there were, you know, people didn't have weddings. They didn't have birthday parties. They didn't, they didn't have, you didn't have 60,000 people watching a, 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 a baseball game. That's not true now. I mean, we've definitely loosened our behavior. And I think it's, it's a hard sort to get back there to be as stringent as we were last summer as compared to this summer. So I, I do worry about kids going back to school. But I think that the, the critical thing is if we don't have vaccines, then our only other choice at that point is masking. And I think we need to be really good about that when we go back to school. Okay, let me take some calls here from Mara in Hopkins. Hi, Mara. Really appreciate you calling. What are you thinking about this morning? Well, I teach in high school, and I have multiple sclerosis. So I was Mm -hmm. told by my neurologist that my disease-modifying therapy invalidates the vaccine that I received. My son is 10. He's in elementary school, and all summer he's been in camps outside wearing his mask because he wants to protect his mom, which is mm-hmm. very sweet. Now I'm worried about both myself because I, of course, need the health insurance for my job to treat my multiple sclerosis. But if I go into school, I'm putting myself at risk. And now I'm increasingly worried about my son at 10, not old enough to get the vaccine, which he keeps saying, Mom, Mom, is there a trial? Can I go in a trial to get the vaccine to protect you? Um, yeah, this is complicated. I just heard something about 84% increase in cases in kids last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Gagnon, th- this is what I alluded to about these these complicated situations where you have unvaccinated school-going kids who might be mixing with family members who are particularly vulnerable. And in Mara's case here, she's also going to be in a school. What's, I guess, can you, can you assess her risk level and then some of the interventions that might be helpful? Yeah, so Mara, thanks for calling, and I, I hear you and your concerns. It's important to remember that every family needs to make the unique decision that's best for them, taking into context their own social, uh, mental, and physical health uh, challenges that may be faced both with their children and other adults in the household. And so working with your own medical team who knows your health care best is a great place to start. I think, uh, to Dr. Offit's point, it comes down to uh, us as a community coming together, both as 
as local communities and school districts and putting in place mitigation uh, that can help protect one another. This means vaccinating those that are 12 and over, uh, masking in school districts, and also, you know, you've seen teachers also not only masking, but also wearing face shields, for example, to protect their eyes, uh, hand hygiene and social distancing. And so it's going to take that unified effort by a school district, for example, to help protect its teachers and its students alike from helping decrease that transmission uh, between uh, students and teachers in the classroom and bringing that back into the home where there may be multi-generational individuals living or individuals with various health care needs, as, as Mara, you're pointing out here. So again, it's, it's that unified uh, action together as a community to try to help decrease that transmission. Dr. Gadden, I want to ask you about something that I think if we've been following the transmission of the Delta variant, we're hearing about viral loads again. This is something that we were hearing about at the very beginning of the pandemic, which is that you may, even if you're vaccinated and you're exposed to the Delta variant, you may carry a higher viral load in your nose. Is that something that you're going to be watching very carefully when you have even vaccinated people mixing with kids who are unvaccinated and, you know, maybe they're doing this in the household and nobody really knows whether they are transmitting the variant. How, how, tell me what you're, what you're seeing in the research and what that may mean for back to school. Certainly, you know, we're, you know, each day we're learning more and more about transmission, but I think, you know, that was a key point behind the CDC's most recent movement to encourage vaccinated people uh, to wear masks in indoor public places just for that reason, to protect uh, themselves from, you know, acquiring the same viral load that perhaps could be detected in unvaccinated individuals and transmitting it to other members in their household, such as their unvaccinated children under the age of 12, for example. And so I think there is that concern, which was the impetus to encourage all to get back to masking to help stop that spread, recognizing that vaccinated people do appear to be able to transmit the Delta variant. Dr. Offit, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Well, you know, I I think this is all based on an event that occurred in Provincetown, Massachusetts, um, mm-hmm. celebrating July 4th when there were hundreds of people, mostly men, who sort of gathered together in one area. I, I, here's what I would take away from that. I, I think that it is expected that a vaccine like this, meaning a vaccine to prevent a new coastal virus, similar to sort of rotavirus or influenza virus, is going to be very good at protecting you against moderate to severe to critical disease, but will not necessarily be great at protecting you against asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, where you could still shed virus and be contagious. But that said, I think people who are vaccinated are still less likely to develop asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, uh, which would make them contagious than someone who, uh, who's unvaccinated. So I, I do think, you know, that, that some of the messaging that came out of that outbreak wasn't perfect. And I, I do mm-hmm. think that people should feel comfortable that if they've been vaccinated, they're still less likely to transmit, but it doesn't mean that they're, it's, that, that, that it's impossible that they could transmit. They should know that and therefore, for, uh, therefore mask. Dr. Offit, just one more question here before we go back to the phones. Um, I'm seeing reports of Louisiana children's hospitals filling with kids with the Delta variant and, and children's hospitals in Missouri also starting to hit close to capacity with kids. Is that a consequence of the higher infectiousness, the higher transmissibility 
of the Delta variant? Or is it what you've both been saying about how we've kind of let down our guard and kids are mixing in areas where, you know, we're not using the usual interventions? What do you think? No, I think it's both. I think it's a, a more contagious virus, and it's still in those areas, like Missouri or Louisiana, you have a relatively under-vaccinated population, and children are going to then catch this virus, often from adults. So, again, the answer to the questions that we raise again and again is always the same, almost independent of the question, which is that we need to vaccinate people who are unvaccinated. We, we, we have, I think the Biden administration has called this a, a pandemic of the uh, of the unvaccinated, it's always been yes. a pandemic. The unvaccinated, what it is now is a pandemic of the willfully unvaccinated, and we can do something about that, and we need to do it. And I think, at some level, mandates is part of doing something about it. Two guests this morning, if you're just tuning in, with a lot of expertise in pediatrics and infectious disease. Dr. Paul Offit with us, a pediatrician, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospitals in Philadelphia. And Dr. Madeline Gagnon, associate medical director of pediatrics and vice chief of staff at Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare here in St. Paul. What do you want to know about school and COVID and the Delta variant? Are you getting communications from your school about how it's going to handle the return of in-person learning? As a parent, as an educator, as somebody who may have an educator in the household, what are you most concerned about? 651 800 I also want to add this. Are you hearing from your school that they will not be mandating masks and distancing? What are you thinking about that? Have you been in communication with your school about that? 651-227-6000. Back to John in Minneapolis. Hi, John. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you thinking about this? Yeah, uh, what I wanted to say was the science or what we can draw, the conclusions that we can draw out of all of this are just really up in the air in the sense that, I mean, there's certain things we know, but uh, it's a novel virus. You know, so um, there was anecdotal evidence that uh, even uh, children who had a subclinical infection, uh, their test x-rays changed. That was in Florida. And uh, I'm a a retired respiratory therapist. I would not send my uh, child uh, to school at this point. I'd uh, uh, try to arrange some kind of other uh, instruction at home. I don't think it's uh, really safe. And, you know, uh, with children, you want to eliminate all uh, possibilities of them dying or getting sick or having, you know, ca- getting a disease that possibly will change their life forever, like with the long haulers. Mm-hmm. We really don't know much about this, uh, uh, you know, disease, but we do know that the most successful country was Taiwan still, uh, only 750 deaths out of 25 million people. And um, they did things that we just never did uh, from the very beginning. They did it because they had SARS-1. They were already primed for this type of virus. And okay. unfortunately, we're, we were not prepared. And until yeah. we you know, take care of the, the infrastructure of schools, I, I really don't think it's safe. Uh, you know, John, even- I, I, John, I think I have the essence of what you're calling to say here. I appreciate your concern here. Dr. Gagnon, I want to take what John is saying and then put this into the mix. I was reading studies from last spring 
including in some rural schools in Wisconsin, that showed that even if the virus was circulating in a classroom, masking and distancing were keeping kids safe. So take what you hear John talking about with his expertise and then take some of the research that was coming out last spring. Where are we in that? Well, I think, John, you raise a good point. There are many anxious parents out there who worry to the extent that you're talking about, about wanting to eliminate all risk for their children. And we don't know all the long-term effects. We haven't had enough distance on this pandemic. I will say that roughly about 0.01% of children in Minnesota ages 0 to 19 who have contracted COVID have been hospitalized, which speaks again to the fact that children are impacted, but often with asymptomatic or mild symptoms. Thankfully, uh, you know, many, many are not required hospitalizations, and we have had uh, single-digit deaths from uh, the COVID pandemic virus. And while no death is acceptable, uh, it comes to a risk stratification of which each family and each parent is comfortable with. And so, thankfully, the, you know, retrospective look of last year's data coming out of Minnesota Department of Health does show that children do remarkably well if they do encounter the virus. But I do think it it speaks to John's uh, concerns about the long-term or lingering side effects that can come from COVID. And I think that's where it comes back to using that uh, unified effort to control our behavior, masking, social distancing, giving the school districts enough resources to do that. And resources come not only in tangible resources, but the support uh, from, you know, government officials and from school leaders and superintendents across the state to provide support uh, to unify in that masking effort, to your point, uh, can be so effective in stopping the spread because it's not only the healthcare risks that are at play, but also now going on 18 months plus here of looking at their uh, educational and social and mental health needs as well. Dr. Offit, uh, let me let me follow on this with does the transmissibility of the Delta variant make some of that research that was coming out of, you know, where they're testing schools and they're looking at the the presence of a circulating virus and still kids were primarily safe. Does the, does the Delta variant make that outdated, I guess? That, well, that's right. I think it certainly uh, alters the interpretation to some extent. I agree. I mean, if you look at the, the virus, we, basically this is the third variant. I mean, the first, the virus that came up in Wuhan was eventually replaced by the so-called D614G variant. That's the variant that left China. That's the variant that swept through Europe, Asia, and the United States and killed in this country more than 500,000 people. That was replaced by the alpha variant. The reason it was replaced is that if you looked at the quantity of virus that was shed from the nose and throat, the alpha variant was basically 10 times more than that first variant. Now we have the third variant, the Delta variant, which again has taken over. And the reason it's taken over, it shed basically a thousand times more virus than, and a hundred times more than alpha, a thousand times more than the original virus. Um, And that's why, that's why it's taken over. So you're right. I mean, it's, I think when you see a, a virus like Delta, which is shed at such a much greater quantity, you probably can assume that you don't need as long of a contact between one person and the next to get infected. And so, I do think it does change it a little bit. It should scare people. I mean, this this Delta variant should scare people. And the reason more children are getting infected is because it's, this is more contagious. The good news is it, it doesn't appear to be any more virulent, meaning more likely to cause severe disease. The only reason I think that more children are, are suffering severely is because more children are getting infected. I can tell you that in our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, 
We have a handful of kids now that are in the hospital, which is more than we were seeing, and a few of them are in the intensive care unit. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it, as, as Dr. Gagnon said, she's exactly right. I mean, it is it is an uncommon cause of very severe disease, but it can happen, which is why you know, we need a vaccine for children of all ages. Yeah. Well, I have a call about that uh, from Jasmine in Minneapolis. Hi, Jasmine. What's your question about the vaccination age? Uh, so the vaccination age is 12, and I know that HPV vaccinations are actually given to kids at younger ages, like 10 and 11. My question is, why can't we lower the vaccination age to 10, 9, 8, 7, um, if we're, as parents, willing to cooperate with the medical community and just why can't we lower the vaccination age and if the parents are okay with it? I have a 7-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 4-year-old, and I would get my 7- and 10-year-old vaccinated in a heartbeat because I'm mm-hmm. high risk. Dr. Offit, back to you on the vaccines. The research is going on, right? The studies by the pharmaceutical companies on lowering the age. Where are we? Right. So, so to, to, to get to, to the caller's point, the, the, when Pfizer did its original trial, it, 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 it extended its, its uh, dose, it, its data down to 16 years of age. So you had uh, several hundred children between 16 and 17 years of age that you knew got the vaccine safely and effectively. When they then extended down to 12 years of age, so they did their study of 12 to 17-year-olds, which was a 2,300-child study that either the children received either vaccine or placebo, it wasn't a leap to believe that it was going to be the same dose, 30 micrograms of messenger RNA, and the same dosing interval, three weeks. And, in fact, the vaccine was, as you would expect, safe and effective. Once you go down to six years of age, then you need to go back to the so-called phase one studies, or the dose-ranging studies, to make sure that the dose is right. You know, because... A six-year-old isn't the same thing as a six, same child as a 16-year-old, and so they do 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, 30 micrograms to make sure that you have the, the optimal dose, meaning a dose that is, is safe and effective, you know, and, and, and uh, is exactly where you want it to be, that sweet spot. So the, those are ongoing trials, trials between 4,000 and 7,000 are big depending on whether it's Moderna or Pfizer. But you really should wait for the, the results of those trials. I mean, I, I too, wish that we had those results at hand right now. I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, but I suspect we're probably not going to have a vaccine until late fall or early winter, which is too bad because you'd like to have a vaccine before these kids go back to school for all the reasons that we've talked about. But you do need to wait. Dr. Gagnon, one of the things I, I've wondered about is if – and when the vaccine is available for kids 12 and under, whether we are going to see kind of a repetition of what we're seeing right now, areas of the country that are hesitant, skeptical, resistant to vaccines, and whether that's going to happen in, you know, the kid population too, parents who don't believe it's necessary and what the consequence of that may be. Have you, have you given some thought to that? I think as a pediatrician, we are always wanting to do uh, prophylactic or uh, preventative medicine. So working with our parents uh, in in anticipation of this coming vaccine for those under the age of 12 and helping uh, provide reassurance to their anxiety. It's only natural for parents to be anxious about putting anything in their child's body so that that questioning attitude is only inherent to good parenting. But us Mm -hmm. then, it is our job to help provide information around the studies and help uh, provide that reassurance. 
you know, thousands upon thousands of, of you know, 12 to 16-year-olds have received this vaccine and, and been incredibly safe, and it's been incredibly effective in previous uh, trials, as I'm sure Dr. Offit can speak to. And certainly, uh, I anticipate we'll see something similar for those under the age of 12. So again, vaccinating those when they have the opportunity will be incredibly important. So starting those discussions now, uh, both in school and the medical community, is so important. I think uh, skepticism around science and the anti-vaccine movement uh, is incredibly difficult. There there has been a powerful movement putting out a lot of misinformation, and misinformation mm-hmm. in this particular case is incredibly dangerous. And so it's very important uh, to get that education out there and, and correct that information. I want to get a call in here before we go to news to Ellen in Apple Valley. Ellen, you're a teacher, is that right? Yeah, so I'm a high school science teacher, and there's just a couple comments I want to make. First of all, um, I'm okay going back to school, largely because I'm vaccinated. But I Mm -hmm. think um, uh, even your experts have an unrealistic view of what a a high school classroom is really like. Um, Because, you know, they're quoted that in Wisconsin, the studies showed that masking and social distancing kept the kids safe. For one thing, um, the classes didn't have as many students actually in school. Like last spring, I was teaching kids small classes in front of me because half of the kids were, you know, Zooming in via Google Meet from home. So I didn't have that many kids in front of me. But I've already looked my class lists for this year. Some of my classes have 36 kids in them in classes that are designed at a 28-student capacity. So social distancing is impossible. Um, And then also with masking, I think just with the teenage brain, you wouldn't believe how often you have to remind kids. They're just some kids are just defiant and do not want to keep that mask on over their, especially their nose. Um, So those, I just think it's unrealistic to say, oh, everything will be fine if there's masking and social distancing, because that isn't what a real high school classroom looks like today. And then one question I have for your experts is, I'm not too concerned about this, but this year I'm, you know, we're planning to do actual live experiments. So there's a lot of shared materials, not just between all, you know, five of my sections of students, but also with my coworkers that are doing the same experiments. You know, we're all sharing these materials. There's going to be hundreds of hands maybe touching the same things. So what what will that mean if you've got lots of people touching the same things uh, for the spread? of the virus. Okay. Dr. Gagnon, um, the first part of what Ellen was asking about, which is, you know, here's the reality, here's the recommendation. I have a big class and we're going to be doing experiments. How do we manage what these recommendations say in the reality of a, of a classroom? You know, I think Ellen makes an excellent point. And I know myself as a mother of second grade twins, uh, the mother inside of me echoes those same uh, fears and concerns about the reality check of the uh, mitigation efforts we, we need to have in place to keep our kids safe. And that often uh, requires accountability and ongoing surveillance by each district, which is, which is exhausting. So first and foremost, uh, we don't have district-to-district district, uh, unification on mask mandating. We need to start there. We need to have the district you know, come strong with mask mandating so that teachers uh, then are in a position to have surveillance and accountability of the students, which is not to underestimate just how exhausting that is for every teacher. 
year. Uh, the districts also need resources. As we saw in late June, Governor Walls announced that Minnesota will spend $132 million on federal education funding uh, to help districts. And so I think, you know, putting those resources to good use, that comes down to space teacher-to-student ratios, uh, you know, and ability to keep the classroom safe. But it is no doubt that Ellen is right, that, that to keep surveillance on this and to keep our students, our parents, and our districts accountable uh, is exhausting. Lots of comments on Twitter here. Mike says, what about the damage to kids missing school, socio-developmentally, and education milestones? versus the very low risk for kids from COVID. Masks work. My three-year-old wore his mask daily without problems. Parker says, I'm planning to send my kids under 12 to school with higher level masks. We'll add additional protection for them. We know my fifth grader will be in, in a school with masking for all. Not sure about the first grader yet. I guess, Dr. Offit, I'll just, I'll ask about whether this is a time to get kids wearing those N95s, or isn't that really necessary? It's a good question. I I think, you know, the the, the key word here is mitigation, not elimination. In other words, when we mitigate risk, we lessen risk, but we don't eliminate it. So as as Mm -hmm. Ellen said, the teacher, high school teacher called earlier, the way it plays out in the real world is not perfect. You know, you're, you're going to have people who aren't great at wearing masks. It's going to be difficult to social distance. It's going to be difficult when kids go to the cafeteria and eat. So you're trying to lessen but not eliminate risk. And, and what, you know, and there's always a price to pay for higher and higher sort of uh, stringency in terms of masks and social distancing. N95 masks are not as easy to wear as, say, just the, the rectangular surgical mask that's a little easier to wear. So, so it's, it's really a, a balance. I, I, I'm not sure there's a clear, easy answer to this. Um, I, in some level, it comes down to what parents are comfortable with, what the child is comfortable with. But I think um, that we can do a good, I think certainly we all agree kids need to go back to school. And I think that because there's just too much of a price to pay for not doing that, realizing that when we do that, there is some risk. And there are children who may get sick and there may be outbreaks in schools and just do the best we can to try and get on top of that. To L in Excelsior. Hi, L. Really appreciate you waiting. What are you thinking about as you hear our conversation? Um, yeah, I'm a clinician and also a parent of two Minnetonka School District children. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I believe that we should require vaccinations for teachers. And I, I think historically, Dr. Peterson has given us no confidence that he actually believes in the validity of the pandemic. He, uh, back in back in May, was saying that it was no worse than the flu. Um which, uh, you know, does not inspire confidence among me and, you know, fellow clinicians that penned him a letter uh, to that effect. But, um, but yeah, I think it should be required that uh, teachers be vaccinated. And if they're not going to be vaccinated, then they can do e-learning or something. But you're not going to be around my child who is ineligible for a vaccine when you can potentially give them a deadly virus. L is Dr. Peterson the superintendent yeah, he's at the Minnetonka? Superintendent. What what was the reaction to the letter that you all sent? Well, we have yet to find out. Um, there were several clinicians uh, that were a part of the letter, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, MPs like myself, um, that voiced concerns about, uh, you know, right at the end of the last school year, he said, oh, well, we'll see about the masks when the kids return, which I think was, you know, an unnecessary addition. And I think he was leaving the door open for um you know, to, to say, oh, we won't, we won't be masking, uh, when, when the kids return. Yeah. Um, and, 
based on that information and and his his historical stance on this pandemic, um, several of us were concerned and helped uh, helped pen a letter to him. Mm. Dr. Gagnon, what about L's suggestion that teachers be required to get the vaccine? A, a delicate subject. We did a show on this recently, and boy, is it complicated. It sure is. Yes. You know, the Delta variant has certainly put pressure across the nation on this topic. Even here locally, we've seen Fairview and Alina in the last week uh, make movements to require their staff at these healthcare systems here across the state of Minnesota uh, implement a vaccine requirement for their staff. So certainly uh, we are moving in that direction. You can see the vaccine uh, passport in New York City, for example. So I do think that the Delta variant and uh, where we are beginning to climb here today and the weeks to come has uh, altered the course of conversation. Uh, certainly myself being a healthcare provider and, and mother of students, uh, I can appreciate uh, Elle's concern of wanting teachers to be vaccinated. It helps it greatly in helping decrease the transmission. Dr. Offit, I have to say, I was pretty astonished to read how how many people there are working in healthcare settings who are not vaccinated yet. Can you tell me what the, what the policy is at Children's Hospital in Philly? Yes, we have a hard vaccine mandate that will be put in place by mid-October. We're giving people who haven't been vaccinated yet who work in our hospital, the tens of thousands of people who work in our hospital, not just doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners, but any, you know, dietary services, environmental services, anybody who can walk in the room, has, has to have received the mRNA vaccine, two doses of vaccine by then. If they have not done it, uh, they will not be able to work in our hospital. I mean, they, you know, they will no longer be employed by our hospital. It's a hard mm-hmm. mandate, and it's, it's the right thing to do, because if you're going to mm-hmm. choose to be part of our community, to work around a vulnerable population of hospitalized children, many of who can't be vaccinated, not only because of their age, because, but because of their illness, you have a responsibility. And I would extend that to society. I think that if you work, if you live in this society, you have a responsibility to those who you're surrounded by. Your earlier caller, Mara, who had uh, multiple sclerosis, she is yeah. likely receiving a biological agent that decreases the ability of her B cells, which are cells that make antibodies, to do that. Therefore, she's much less likely to have a vaccine that works in her. She depends in, on those around her to protect her. Don't we have a responsibility to her? And I think we do. And as far as the high school uh, teacher who called earlier, the science teacher, the good news is we have a vaccine for high school students. We have a vaccine for 12 to 17-year-olds. I think not only should we mandate a vaccine for the teachers, I think we should mandate a vaccine for the high school students. All right. Uh, Glad I asked. (laughs) Good to have your insight on that. To Jennifer in International Falls. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for waiting. Hi, Jennifer. Are you there? Hi. Uh, Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now we can. You're a school board member. Is that right? I am. um, Our school board unanimously decided last night to, as part of the mitigation process, we were going to require masks for K through 12, everybody in the building starting in September. Um, it was a unanimous decision, but it was difficult for everybody. I think all of us tried our best to educate ourselves on what was best. Um, but my point is, so last year we were very successful in International Falls. We had elementary in place, all students every day, the entire mm. year because of the layered strategy. Wow. We had very little, we had hybrid model in the 6th through 12th grade and except for a small 
uh, time at the, in the spring, we had that half, 50% of our students in present, present two or three days. It wasn't optimal. We want all our kids there. We want it to be in a safe way for our staff, our, our families, our students, and obviously our community because it affects everybody. So, so, so how we, are you feeling but, about the fall? Yeah. Well, going into, you know, we don't have the same, so we're also in a, in a district that's getting smaller. So we don't have, we're losing students just by population, but also we lose students by these tough decisions. And because families are either concerned to send their kids or they just will refuse to if we require masks. We know that this is, makes us vulnerable. And we don't have the same resources to keep, ah. we, last year we had the staff. We had extra staff to make those class sizes very small at the elementary school so that we could keep the distance. And um, so we know we need the layered strategies. I hope we continue to do that. But my point is, I know we need, we're doing the right thing. Um, I hope that we'll continue to get support from the state and and the federal government. I hope we can get more people vaccinated. And I hope Jennifer, I really, yeah. Jennifer, if, if I might, we have a lot of people who are also waiting. I really appreciate hearing the experience from the school board meeting and wow, the, the valuable experience that you had last year. Thank you for the call to Dustin in Southwest Minnesota. Dustin, sounds like you're an educator, yeah? Yes, I, I teach in a, a district in Southwest Minnesota. I teach high school. And as it was just previously stated, um, high school students can be vaccinated. But I, I teach in a county that is one of the lowest counties in the state of Minnesota for their vaccination rate. I think we're somewhere around 40%. And from teaching last year and getting feedback from students, just families not willing to um, get the vaccine and at the same time not um, being willing to, to mask. The, the, hmm. the, it being realistic to have your students mask when, they, when they're defiant about it, um, how do you function, how do you, how do you operate when your vaccination rates are low um, when Mm -hmm. the students aren't masking. And at what point does it become a personal responsibility? So I'm, I'm vaccinated and I know that if I get the virus, hopefully I'm not going to get super sick because that's what Mm -hmm. the vaccine's for. At what time does it become a personal responsibility that, Hey, the vaccine's there. It's your choice. You know, you know, the risk. So, Dustin, do you do you anticipate that there will be kids in your classroom who are not masking and aren't va- well, obviously aren't vaccinated, but aren't masking? Oh, I, I'm I'm certain I'm certain. Uh, last year, our um, mask compliance towards the end of the year was was not great. Boy, and- Dr. Gagnon, I, I don't know if you have any advice on this, but boy, this, this really presents a complex situation in a classroom, doesn't it? It sure does. And it all really between the last two callers of Jennifer and Dustin here really uh, highlight an interesting juxtaposition about everybody's community responsibility here. International Falls and Kuchiching County has low transmission currently. And it also speaks to what it sounds like Jennifer speaking to, to a school board who unanimously passed masking for K through 12. You know, it strikes me based on their transmission rate and this information about their school board speaks to a community that wants to come together to make decisions that help keep each other safe. And I think what Dustin is highlighting on 
is a community that we've seen, you know, echoed and repeated across the country where there is a disagreement on this topic and taking in, quote, individual choice compared to a community responsibility. And certainly myself and many others in the healthcare community, you know, want to support the obligation we have to one another to mask and get vaccinated and stop this transmission. But I think these two counties, for example, here in Minnesota, really highlight um, key key problems we're having and, and the reason for more uh, universal support from, uh, you know, governments, governors, district leaders at large to put in uh, structures that can help implement this safety. Dr. Offit, I, I wonder how important you think the FDA full authorization is, because we're hearing from some Americans that they are still skeptical about the vaccine because the FDA hasn't fully authorized it. I guess I question whether they, you know, how acquainted they are with the science of what the FDA does and whether it matters. But what do you think? Right. So technically, when a when a product has approval through emergency use authorization, that what that literally means is that the company has the right to distribute an investigation new drug. That's what that means. But this is far from investigational. I mean, you already have more than 300 million doses of this vaccine that's been out there. Half of the American public has received this vaccine. You have an enormous safety and immunogenicity and efficacy profile on this product, more than most licensed products out there. I mean, how many licensed products have been given to half of the American public. So, so you already, so the notion that this is in any way investigational or experimental should drop out. The difference between the, this EUA and a licensed product technically is that when the FDA licenses a product, they don't just license the product. They also license the manufacturing site and they license the process. So you license three things, which means that you have to go through all these protocols and validate all those protocols to see, to, to prove that, that every step of the manufacturing process has been now validated via these protocols. That's really the only difference. So it's more of a psychological thing than anything else. But you're right. I mean, that's what I hear probably more than anything else. I don't want to use this. Really? I mean, that there will not have enough information at this point that this vaccine oh. is what it's claimed to be. That, that really startles me that you are still hearing that. And your answer is, look around the safety of it has been validated and is validated every single day. Yeah? Exactly. That's exactly right. Huh. Call from Nick in Minneapolis. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you thinking about? Hi. So uh, my name is Nick Zorko, and I'm an oncology fellow at the University of Minnesota. And I um, mm-hmm. was hoping that maybe we could address the actual breakdown of healthcare providers receiving the vaccine. I think it was the AMA, American Medical Association, said more than 95% of doctors had actually received the vaccine. So I was hoping if somebody had some more numbers showing that your doctors are really, really believe this is safe with that uptake. Um, but oh, it's not, good, it's good not necessarily point. the doctors rejecting the vaccine, if that makes sense. That's such a good point. Yeah, Dr. Gagnon, um, maybe more information out there that healthcare professionals, including the doctor you trust, believe in this vaccine and have it for themselves and their families. No doubt. I charge every healthcare professional out there in our communities to share their own story, to help uh, input that trust that I myself have received this vaccine. You should consider it as my patient. Uh, I've certainly heard many non-primary care surgeons, uh, pain doctors, and other specialists who, you know, vaccination is not their area of specialty, but recognize their influence as an important 
uh, physician in their patient's lives and, and speak to them about their own experiences. And, you know, certainly we, we love to hear those stories where each day, you know, if, even if it means one or two of your panel of patients change their mind because of your influence. So I think Nick raises a key point. The large majority of us physicians have gotten this vaccine and, and vouch for its efficacy and safety and, and encourage our patients to do so. Dr. Offit, a a question here about whether if the vaccination rates continue to hover about where they are and we still have, I don't know, 25% of the country, adults that aren't vaccinated, is it possible that these variants could ultimately mutate to become vaccine resistant? Or is that highly unlikely? So it depends how you define resistant. I mean, right now, if you look at the Delta variant as compared to the previous two variants, it is somewhat more resistant to protection against mild illness or asymptomatic infection. Um, so, so the good news is the Delta, the uh, current vaccines protect against severe critical disease caused by the Delta variant. That's good. The, the vaccine can keep you out of the hospital. It can keep you out of the morgue. That's good. But is it possible that it could get to the point where the, the, the virus is completely resistant, which is to say that, that even if you've been vaccinated, you are still as likely to be hospitalized or killed. Um, it's possible. I, I do think my sense is that it would be relatively unlikely just because I think that those mutations may be lethal mutations to the virus, not to the person, to the virus. So I think okay. um, it hasn't happened yet, um, but certainly you're starting to see it move in the wrong direction, which is the Delta mm-hmm. variant is somewhat more resistant to protection against mild disease. So um, and the, the degree to which we continue to let it spread is, it continues to be a problem. I, there was the earlier caller who talked about sort of a personal decision. This isn't a personal decision. This is not a decision you make for yourself on whether or not to get a vaccine. It's a decision you make for everyone with whom you come in contact. I mean, if I don't get a tetanus vaccine after I cut my foot on a rusty nail, that's a personal decision. No one's going to catch tetanus for me. It's not a <laughs> contagious disease. This is, and I think that it's... Um, when people try and make a case for this sort of personal freedom, because we do that in America, because it's a country founded mm-hmm. on the basis of individual rights and freedoms, this is a personal freedom we don't have. It is not your right as an American citizen to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. And uh, it's just Gagan, hard to watch the way that this plays out. I, I'd love to hear you on that, too, th- this idea that, well, it's my personal decision, and I get to make that decision no matter how it affects the people around me. W- would you speak to that? I completely support Dr. Offit's view on this, that this is a a choice that impacts the community. And so, you know, much like we don't have, you know, choice around uh, drinking and driving or seatbelts or uh, having car insurance, uh, again, things to, you know, help protect and and provide social fabric safety for the communities we live in. And so this vaccine against COVID is, is that that impacts all of us across the state of Minnesota, not just us as individuals. Completely agree with Dr. Offit's point. Dr. Offit, I've got about a minute left, though. Um, Do you think that the vaccine will be available for kids under 12 by late October, November, or is it going to take longer than that? I know as much as you do. (laughs) Usually we... we, (laughs) No, you know a whole lot, whole lot more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) We know about two two weeks. We'll know about two weeks before we're asked to have our committee meeting on this, and we will be meeting on this. Um, So I'm, I'm... Hopeful like you that we could have it certainly before late fall. We'll just have okay. to wait. 
I really appreciate both of your time. Thank you so much. Dr. Paul Offit is a pediatrician and director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Dr. Madeline Gagnon is the Associate Medical Director of Pediatrics and Vice Chief of Staff at Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare here in St. Paul. Coming up tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., if you are in a family where you're making a decision about whether to send your kids back to school, big decision like that for your family, how do you do it? Economics professor Emily Oster says parenting is about common sense and it's about data and she's got a system for it. A new book out called The Family Firm. I think this is going to be super interesting. Tune in tomorrow morning at 9. NPR News with Carrie Miller is produced by Kelly Gordon and Ariana Rosas. You can hear the show live at 9 a.m. weekdays on NPR News or by subscribing to the NPR News with Carrie Miller podcast. Thanks for listening.